Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. But throughout our history, that has been interpreted in many different ways, and we've often been quick to censure people who offend or frighten us. On top of that, the Supreme Court has determined that protection of speech is not absolute. Historian Jonathan Zimmerman and Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoonist Sidney Wilkinson tell the story of free speech in America in their new book from City of Light Publishing titled Free Speech and Why We Should Give a Damn. And they join us now. Jonathan Sidney, welcome to WBAI Free Speech Radio in New York. Thanks for having us, Leonard. Glad to be here. Sidney, didn't you pitch the idea for this book to Jonathan? I did. Fortunately, he's an easy sell. <laughs> he was uh, he. No comment. <laughs> he's a prolific. I mean, the man writes like in his sleep. He does so many uh, columns, and many of them were on free speech. Appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer where I was working. And uh, I'm kind of a nut on the subject, too, having been involved in plenty of controversies over free speech and cartooning. Hmm. So um, had him out to coffee and you have in your hand the result. Hmm. Well, uh, we'll, I'll be talking mostly to Jonathan uh, because we're talking about what's in the text of this book. But please, Signe, feel free to jump in at any point, okay? Uh, that would be great. I just want to remind you that uh, cartoonists are involved in a lot of these uh, controversies, too. And I will ask you about that. OK, great. Uh, Jonathan, I began by quoting the First Amendment, which many people cite when the issue of free speech comes up. But doesn't it only apply to Congress? Congress shall make no law. Um, there have been many cases involving laws passed by Congress, but this book is full of instances of censorship across the board. Yeah, look, what you just said, Leonard, obviously is technically true, right? So uh, the First Amendment only enjoins Congress against violating free speech. But of course, after the 14th Amendment, right, uh, 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 those ideas were included incorporated into what state and local governments can do. And I think more broadly, I think, you know, free speech isn't just a constitutional right, although surely it's that. It's also a spirit. It's a philosophy. You know, uh, Leonard Hand, who we quote in the book, and I think is the most important jurist that was never on the Supreme Court, he, he gave a famous speech in 1944 called The Spirit of Liberty. And he famously wrote that, you know, um, this isn't simply a matter of law. And indeed, if it's only a matter of law, it's not going to work. It's got to be a principle that runs through our lives, through our spirits. You've said that every great campaign for social justice in America has been powered by free speech and by people who are free speech absolutists. But that hasn't always applied to our precedents. And you cite situations involving John Adams and the XYZ affair, Abraham Lincoln, Woodrow Wilson, among others, including some recent presidents as well. (laughs) Yes. And and look, I think that's another really important theme of the book and theme of this history, which is that free speech has been observed in the breach, 
Um, so, you know, the history of free speech in the United States is the history of the denial, the restriction and often outright denial of free speech. And that's precisely why, A, we have to know the history and B, we have to be vigilant about protecting it. Uh, for example, most of my students are quite surprised to learn that Vietnam is the first war, was the first war, where the courts explicitly granted American citizens the right to criticize the war. Mm. But and, that's and, you know, that was, was after, alive then. I mean, that was after a number of crackdowns on exactly right and 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 ultimately in the in the Cohen v California case this is in the early 70s uh, a 19 year old college student named Paul Cohen walks into a draft board um, wearing a jacket that says F the draft mm-hmm. and he was arrested under one of these speech codes and ultimately in, in, after that the Supreme Court said he could indeed do that but remember by that time I'm in middle school. So this is all relatively recent, and I think a lot of Americans don't recognize that. So if you protested the the Iraq or Afghanistan war, you need to know that, um, you know, other than Vietnam, this is the first time you could do so in a constitutionally protected way. And, and Signey, you've been doing uh, cartoons, political cartoons now for, what, nearly 40 years? Yes, that's a long time. <laughs> uh, well, the, the reason I ask is not to uh, give people a sense of how old you are, but rather to give them a sense of, of the, the, the time that you've been uh, doing cartoons and, and uh, how things have changed. Um, have you seen uh, the winds moving back and forth over the, all those years? Um, absolutely. Um, and they, they move both ways. I mean, uh, you know, we we often uh, people assume that we're talking about only conservatives crack down on speech. But as we see now, uh, a lot of liberals are telling um, other people what's OK uh, to say or not say in a variety of areas. So um, it's it, yeah, it's wins. <laughs> I was a, a good way of saying it. There's winds of this and winds change as times change. Now, so, uh, yeah, people complain if uh, if they disagree with whether they're on the left or the right, although uh, the general sense, uh, Jonathan, wouldn't you say, is that it's more likely they're protesting something that's happening from the right? I, I do think it's both. But I do think, especially at this moment, they have different valences, different meanings. The one that's happening from the right, we see in state legislatures right now, mm-hmm. right, restricting what K-12 schools and sometimes universities can teach around race and gender. Uh, this, ironically, is brought to you by the same party, namely the Republican Party, that likes to bleed on about the dangers of cancel culture. You know what those laws are? They're cancel culture out of the barrel of a gun. I mean, that's what they are. I mean, they're cancel culture on steroids. Um, and that's coming entirely from the Republican Party. Yet at the same time, to Signe's point, I do think it's fair to say, going back to the spirit of liberty, that a lot of people on the left, especially at our universities, which obviously is where I'm employed, um, ha- have, if not lost that spirit, certainly forgotten it. Um, so, you know, to take the most obvious example, if you, like me, are outraged by uh, Loudoun County, Virginia, banning a Toni Morrison book, maybe you should go back and ask yourself why you were so hot on getting rid of Huck Finn. How can you, in the same breath, protect Toni Morrison if you're purging Huck Finn? I don't think you can. And the purges of Huck Finn did not come from the right. They came from the left. Although there are a lot of people on the left who defended Huck Finn. 
Absolutely. People right? who, just are, are, just, who are absolutists who believe that freedom of, of speech should apply in all cases, as long as it doesn't correct, lead to, to a death. Correct. I mean, just like there, there are Republicans, there are people on the right right now who have criticized these state laws and bills that I mentioned, including, by the way, and this hasn't gotten enough ink, uh, the Koch Foundation. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're rather consistent libertarians, and, and um, they've decried all these laws as gag rules, uh, which, by the way, they are. Now, why did you begin your book with a history of the Palmer raids? Do they have a special significance in this story? Uh, they do, because World War One, uh, um, which we got into in 1914 and uh, or sorry, we got into 1917 and leave in 1918, was such a signal event. The Palmer raids happened right after the First World War. And during the First World War, there was an enormous burst of censorship in the country. Mm. Um, so uh, not only did it become illegal to criticize the war, but, uh, you know, it was illegal in some states to speak German, including on the telephone. Um, and in several states, by the way, you couldn't say hamburger. That, of course, was a liberty sandwich. And you couldn't say sauerkraut because that, of course, uh, became a liberty cabbage. Because, right, I mean, you can't play for the other team, right? And, and what happened right after the, the First World War is there's another burst of fear, this time surrounding the Bolshevik Revolution, which, remember, happened, ironically, during the First World War. And indeed, although most Americans don't this, uh, the United States briefly invaded Russia after Russia under the Bolsheviks got out of the war. And so the Palmer raids represent this sort of interesting transition from the fear of Germans, whom we defeated, to the fear of Bolsheviks, who were this, this, uh, you know, this, this, new, this new enemy. And they involve rounding up people who are either communists or suspected communists and either jailing them or deporting them. Uh, Emma Goldman being, mm-hmm. you know, the most famous victim, but hardly the only one. Well, how often did the restrictions involve wars, even non-shooting conflicts like the Cold War? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's fair to say that um, war has always been the time that free speech has been under the most stress. In fact, uh, you, write, you, you write for most of our history, dissent during wartime was illegal or highly restricted. And that goes all the way back to a conflict with France in the late 1790s. Uh, up to the early stages of the war in Vietnam in 1960s. Right, right. And and look, you know, um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who became one of our great civil libertarians, you know, he he had this great phrase where he said, you know, give the censor his due. Um, You know, censorship has a logic to it. Censors aren't dumb, um, you know, uh, and the logic becomes very powerful during wartime. And the logic goes like this. Um, There's a conflict going on and only one team is going to win. Why should we allow anyone from our team to play for the other team? Now, I've spent my career arguing against that logic, but to Holmes's point, you have to give it its due. It does make a certain kind of cognitive sense. The goal of the conflict is a win. If people are questioning the conflict, that's going to lessen our chances of doing so. Well, he was uh, on the Supreme Court during uh, World War One. Woodrow Wilson signed the Espionage Act of 1917, and then the Sedition Act of 1918. What did they? What were they intended to do? Well, they were intended to squelch any kind of any kind of dissent, and not just, by the way, uh, you know, dissent about the war. There's even language in those things. You can't say anything bad about the flag. You can't say anything bad about the Constitution, um, and. 
uh, um, Holmes initially upholds those those laws. So so in the in the Schenck case, Sigmi and I live in Philadelphia, and the Schenck case is a local case because uh, um, Schenck is is uh, the head of the Socialist Party in Philadelphia. That's Schenck versus the United States was the, the case right. that went to the Supreme Court. That's right, and and, and he Schenck distributes um, uh, pamphlets urging draft resistance. Remember, this is the first time the United States has conscription since our Civil War. Right, it's been sixty years since it had it. Um, and uh, he is arrested under one of these sedition acts. And, and uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes initially upheld that. In fact, he wrote the opinion in Shank of the United States where he said, and every school kid can quote mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. freedom of speech does not include falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater. And let me underline falsely because often in the press they leave that out. Um, which is always very annoying because, of course, if there's an actual fire, you want to shout shouting fire. Yeah, yes. <laughs> right, right, right. What Holmes said is it doesn't include falsehood. And so what he says is, you know, what Schenck is doing, i.e. engaging in draft resistance, if there wasn't a fire going on, um, if we weren't in a war, it would be OK, but we're in a war and you can't do that. But interestingly, Holmes came to regret this opinion mm. and it was only a year later in the Abrams case, Abrams v. U.S., where he actually up holds a form of, uh, of, of draft resistance. Um, uh, these were pamphlets that were written in Yiddish, by the way. And Holmes pointed out, I mean, how many people could read Yiddish? I mean, some, but not that many. Um, but uh, uh, he ended up arguing, and they, were also, they also praised the Bolsheviks. Um, he ended up arguing that that should be allowed. But by that time, Holmes is in the minority. So he came to regret the crowded theater metaphor. Uh, because he thought it, it would it would cover and censor too much. There's almost anything that could be censored under that umbrella because we always feel like there's a fire somewhere. I really uh, appreciate your writing about the Schenck case because I've always thought that when he said you shouldn't falsely shout fire in a crowded theater, it involved a case in which somebody shouted fire in a crowded theater. Right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But of course, you know, I, we're, we're talking metaphor here. That's what all of this is, you know. And he thought that, you know, during wartime, we were on fire there, you know, um, uh, uh, that that, um, you know, uh, or I guess I guess I'm now misapplying the metaphor. I mean, he thought that he thought that um, resisting the draft um, uh, uh, would create the kind of panic. Right. Um, and the kind of disorder. Uh, that was dangerous enough to suppress, necessary to suppress. My guests on today's Leonard Lopate at Large are Jonathan Zimmerman and Signe Wilkinson, and we're talking about their book, Free Speech, and Why You Should Give a Damn. It is from City of Light uh, Books, uh, and this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So getting back to the what I originally quoted, Congress shall not uh, uh, make any laws respecting an establishment of religion, blah, 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 blah. And <laughs> we are really talking about this happening on many different levels, the long history of it occurring on state and local levels. And have the courts dealt with it differently uh, depending on where the situation has arisen? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, that's how court doctrine evolves, right? Um, you know, I, I, that is, um, now there are all kinds of things you 
can do that you couldn't do in the past because we're interpreting these ideas differently. I mean, flag burning is a classic example, right? I mean, for most of the history of this country, you couldn't burn the flag. Um, uh, you may recall that Bush Sr., the first Bush president, famously you know, tried to ram through a ban on flag burning, which the court uh, overturned you know, and said that this is you know, constitutionally permissible. Um, so, you know, our ideas of what is permissible and our, indeed our ideas of what constitutes speech in the first place, they absolutely evolve over time, just like every other constitutional principle does, by the way. The ACLU generally defends left-leaning rights like abortion rights, immigration, prison reform. Uh, and this story is often told as restrictions being proposed and imposed by people and organizations on the right. But you, you said earlier, demands for the suppression of ideas and images have come from across the political spectrum. Um, in, in many cases, it involves hate speech, doesn't it? It does. It does. And so, you know, a classic example is during the Second World War, um, the, the fascist press, there, was, there, there were fascists in the United States, um, uh, you know, uh, that, that uh, called themselves, among other things, Christian nationalists, which you could talk about later. Uh, and, you know, the Nation magazine famously supported uh, the Justice Department in suppressing their literature. There's a painful irony to that, of course, because, you know, you can see history repeat itself. After the Second World War, there's another flare of uh, anti-communist panic. And indeed, it would be the Nation magazine that would be removed from school and college libraries and all kinds of other places. Even though the Nation was it, never it, a communist publication. Right. No, no, certainly not. It was no, a publication not. of the left. Uh, definitely. Right. But of course, you know, during the McCarthy era, lots of people on the left were seen, even if they weren't communists, as people that were, quote, fellow travelers or enablers of communism and so on. And the nation was definitely in that category. So, you know, to continue that that metaphor, but in a different way, if you play with fire, you are going to get burned. Um, the nation is four square behind the suppression of the fascist press in World War II. And then it, too, becomes a target for the censors. And then later, the same sort of thing happens with the press on the left. But when does hate speech actually become an issue? Only when it incites violence? Yes. Now, you know, um, uh, it is not true that um, speech uh, is limitless in this country. There is no right that is limitless. Um, you cannot call up the White House and say you're going to murder the president. Or to take, I, I think, uh, you know, a more obvious example from my own life, uh, I can't say to one of my students, you know, I really like the sweater you're wearing, and if you wear it again on Thursday, I'll give you an A. Mm. Um, is that a restriction on my speech? Well, of course it is. And by the way, one that I fully support and live by. Mm -hmm. um, so no speech is unbridled, right? Or I'm sorry, no no right is limitless, right? There, there are limits on all kinds of speech. And the question is, where should it be? Could I just jump in on, oh, on this? Because it's, it's also images that are seen as hateful um, uh, by some people uh, on the left and on the right. Um, uh, and those are the ones that have, I mean, personally, for me, got, uh, <laughs> raised the most uh, problem like uh, I did one um, when Amy Conant Barrett was uh, up for confirmation and she's sitting there and it was uh, Amy Coney Barrett's halo and the halo was uh, a coat hanger. <laughs> and um, the, one reader wrote in and said, 
I wish your mother had had an abortion. <laughs> and, um, and others wrote in similarly. And, and we, we took letters and we published them because, I mean, that was only fair. Uh, I don't think we published that one. That was just an email to me with no return address. But um, and a, uh, another example was a friend of mine. Uh, well, uh, when there was... Um, uh, yeah, people would say that uh, depictions of black characters um, would be uh, demeaning or um, it, and if they, the, the problem is if a black person is involved in something that you're drawing a cartoon about, you have to draw them. Uh, but and, you but distort, you distort the faces of everyone, white, black, Asian, whatever. That would be true. And uh, black, white, Asian or whatever, never like it <laughs> when, when their faces are at all distorted. So, it, you know, it's a it's a visual problem and a tight look, a tight rope that uh, cartoonists walk. And I would say that, uh, you know, almost all of my friends, cartooning friends, take extra pains not to ever uh, not to depict someone negatively just by their physical uh, characteristics, no matter what they are, because they can't help that. That's just the way they are. Uh, and that's not what they're criticizing. They're criticizing their actions. So when and I, I can I can testify from personal experience that Signey is an equal Full opportunity disorder. <laughs> yeah. Wait just, till you just excuse everybody. I Wait noticed all everybody's your... legs are really skinny in your drawings, no matter how fat they may be. Otherwise, <laughs> uh, fat is good. Yeah, that's for a good yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. And, and and look to the point. You know, another good example from the imagery world. I mean, think of the contretemps a few years ago about the the, the cartoons of Muhammad. Right, that caused such consternation in Denmark and elsewhere. Um, you know, uh, most of the people that thought that those shouldn't be printed in the United States, I think it's fair to say, came from the left. Um, and the argument was that you know this is going to offend um, a certain subset of the readership, right? Namely, Muslims. And that's always what censors say. By the way, they don't just say things are dangerous. Now they say what they're going to do is they're going to harm certain people who are going to be so offended by their content or their imagery, right? That we can't allow that. Even if it doesn't incite violence, if it's just being critical. Right. Again, then if it doesn't incite violence or more, more, I mean, to the point of what the court said, if it doesn't create an immediate, an immediate threat of violence, then it is constitutionally protected. Again, you could argue about whether it should be or not, but I found that there's enormous ignorance on this question. I mean, sometimes I'll meet with law students who will say, and of course, hate speech is not constitutionally protected. It is. Again, if you want to argue that it shouldn't be, we'll have that discussion. I'm delighted to have it. Um, but as a matter of law, for the past 30 years, the courts have upheld hate speech on the grounds that we shouldn't empower the government to decide what's so hateful that it can't be aired. Right. I don't trust the government enough to do that. Well, hasn't the argument against hate speech been used to silence perfectly reasonable forms of, of protest? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I mean, I mean, think think of, you know, the the um, 
uh, a lot of the activity that happens on campuses today around things like microaggressions and triggering. That's not literally a form of censorship in the sense that obviously there's no state agency that is prohibiting certain words, but it's absolutely a form of, let's just say, informal, or I would call it institutional censorship, where the argument is, you know, you shouldn't say, for example, that America is a melting pot because there are some people who might be offended by that. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I can understand why in certain circumstances somebody might be offended by that statement. But the question of assimilation, which is really what we're talking about, the melting pot, that's one of the most contested and complicated questions in American letters. The whole idea of an institution of higher education taking a position on that or even more discouraging people from using the term. That's offensive to me. And let me just be clear, that doesn't mean you can't argue against me. I'm not going to censor you, <laughs> right? Um, but I'm appalled at the idea that our institutions of higher learning would be discouraging us from speaking about that. Many may, of the, may I, go ahead. May I, may I go back to the uh, Muhammad uh, sure. uh, question? Because that was huge for cartooning and it was huge for um, uh, American journalism. I'd just like to point out that when uh, that that image from the danish cartoonist cartoonist that set off the fury was initially published in several american newspapers including the austin statesman american and there was no reaction because it hadn't become an issue yet and people weren't alerted that you were supposed to be offended by it but once it became um controversial. I mean, even the New York Times would not print a cartoon for fear of, uh, of uh, a negative reaction. And, and frankly, that was shameful. It was, it, it, it was, and unnecessary. Um, Have you been censored over the years? Sent me personally. Yes, you're working well, for, on, the, for two uh, newspapers. Well, <laughs> fortunately, I have had very tolerant editors, uh, most of them who had bigger problems than me. But um, the, during that controversy, when, when that happened, I was working for the Philadelphia Daily News, which was um, a terrific newspaper, but considered the second in Philadelphia. Um, my editor, you know, I wanted to do a cartoon immediately because I knew the, the cartoonist, I knew the editor of the of the paper uh, and I knew why they were doing it, uh, why they had run that. It was because they were feeling censored for not being able to uh, address the influence of Muslim culture on on their cultures uh, at all. So, um uh, I, of course, wanted to join the fray, by, but by this time, it was kind of locked down on, on, um, on showing that image. Uh, or any, and my editor said, look, we're the Daily News, we're the city paper, this is not our issue. Uh, so I went and stewed about it for a while. <laughs> and then I uh, did a cartoon that had five religious figures, including Mohammed, in a cartoon, you know, looking, uh, laughing together. And they were looking, as the reader could see, at a book that said, the big fat book of stupid religious cartoons. And they're all laughing. Mm. And there was never one uh, complaint about it. And that's because if you draw 
the anybody's prophet, including Jesus or Muhammad or um, and God, if you draw them positively, people don't have a problem with it. It's only if they feel that you're you're making fun of their particular prophet that um, that you have problems. So I'm a, I'm I'm on a I'm a universalist. I think every every I don't go out of my way to insult prophets. <laughs> Only when their their um, adherents go out of the way out of their way to make life miserable for the rest of us. Jonathan, how does the U.S. compare with other countries? How many of them have free speech protections? Uh, um, very few, like ours. You've lived and in any we, number of them. You've said, uh, yeah. You feel frustrated at times. Well, yeah, and look, I get that. You know, and I understand why my German friends, especially, say, you know, well, we can't. I, we can't allow Nazi imagery. Um, they, they can't allow Nazi imagery to, because, because of, of their history. Uh, because of their history and, and also because they don't want Nazism to come back. Um, but, but we have that. neo-Nazis in this country. Uh, we do. And we some do. of them we, incite violence, as we saw in Charlottesville. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Right. Um, And yet again, you know, in Charlottesville, obviously, you know, um, what what the guy did in driving his car and murdering that person, uh, that's, you know, obviously beyond, you know, horrible. Right. And, uh, you know, against every law. But, you know, um, uh, whether that means that those people shouldn't have been able to march is an entirely different question. They do have the right to march. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, If one of them had been with that guy and said, hey, let's drive that car into that woman named Heather. (laughs) Um, uh, That's different. Um, uh, I I didn't follow it closely enough to know if something like that occurred. But I think the larger point for listeners to hear is that if you want to show that somebody incited something, it's not enough just to say, look at the bad stuff that happened afterwards. Because if that were the case, well, then, you know, every single Black Lives Matter protester had said something negative about the police, they could be rung up for somebody that burned a police car, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone, at least listening to WBAI, wants that, right? So it can't, it can't simply be that somebody said something that was annoying or inspiring and that, quote, led to some dangerous action. There has to be an immediate, tangible, and material connection. Of course, those uh, those protesters, uh, it, even if nothing had happened, cartoonists and journalists and writers and photographers can make fun of them for you know for being so wrong on on what they're uh what they're protesting i mean you know their their marching isn't the only thing that's going to happen there's going to be a reaction to their marching and that both uh, you know you have you have to show that uh that as well you're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Freedom of speech, freedom to say, freedom to think, this is my lucky day. Freedom of thought, freedom of dreams. 
freedom to believe that we all can be kings. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Jonathan Zimmerman and Signe Wilkinson. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of their book, Free Speech and Why We Should Give a Damn. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give in the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Jonathan Zimmerman, who's the Judy and Howard Berkowitz Professor in Education at the University of Pennsylvania, the author of an, any number of books, and Signe Wilkinson, who has been a political cartoonist at the Philadelphia News. She was there for 35 years or more recently at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and she's won the Pulitzer Prize, two RFK <laughs> Awards, four Overseas Press Club Thomas Nast Awards. Um, and the book, again, Free Speech and Why we should give a damn. Um, you say uh, that every great campaign for social justice in America has been powered by free speech and by people who are free speech absolutists. And many of the chapters in your book highlight the critical importance of free speech in the civil rights movement, women's rights, LGBTQ rights movement. Didn't Frederick Douglass call it the great moral renovator of society? He did, because he understood that without free speech, he had nothing. And, so, and African-Americans wouldn't be able to, take, to critique their circumstances and their oppression. Exactly. And that goes for, again, all the great social justice warriors, right? They're facing deeply oppressive systems. If they can't openly and freely critique those systems, they can't change anything. Um, so Eugene Debs... Um, uh, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, right up to Du Bois and Martin Luther King Jr. They are all ironclad and zealous defenders of free speech because they understand that it's the people at the bottom that need it the most. Unfortunately, on our campuses, there's been this odd sort of reversal and free speech has been imagined as a kind of conservative value that only assists white men. And this strikes me as a deeply ahistorical and distorted view. But is that just because of the way things have been going recently? Is it a response to just current situation? Or are we ignoring other things? I think it's both. Look, I understand it to a point, to, to a certain point. Like, I understand why my students, after watching Milo Yiannopoulos at Berkeley or, you know, any of the other kind of right-wing flamethrowers would imagine free speech as this kind of conservative or even reactionary value, right? But let's also remember to go back to the Black Lives Matter example. That wasn't a gratuitous example. In fact, one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter was indeed arrested down in Baton Rouge when somebody threw a brick at a, at a police officer. He didn't throw a brick at a police officer, but he gave a speech that some people interpreted as anti-police, all right? And he was, in fact, arrested for, yes, inciting that activity. Um, and, and so, to me, that's a really powerful example of how we all need free speech. And it's, and it's not, quote, a conservative value or a liberal one. It's an American one. Well, while it's, it's a... a, a can be a weapon of social progress, isn't it also a source of learning? Although many people feel that anyone who disagrees with them is either morally or cognitively warped, either stupid or a jerk. 
Yes. Well, if they disagree with me, they're a stupider. <laughs> and I'm sure this, the same goes for you too, as well. But they are still allowed to say it. <laughs> you tell the story of Anthony. Look, look I'm an educator. Uh-huh. And we, we should also point out, by the way, that the uh, suppression of free speech has been uh, used against all sorts of uh, different groups, unions, for example, railroad strikes became an issue at one point. But um, I want to get into the whole matter of of literature. You tell the story of Anthony Comstock's campaign to purge obscene literature and imagery in the 19th century. And didn't George Bernard Shaw make him an object of ridicule as a result? Yeah, yeah, yeah. George Bernard Shaw, not only that, he made him into a new noun, one of the great neologisms, which is Comstockery. Uh, and you know, you know, Shaw said Comstockery is just it, it's just sort of the Puritan effort to blot out anything that makes you uncomfortable, especially surrounding sex. And you know, Comstock was very successful in doing that. You know, and, and he, how did he respond to being called the, to the phrase Comstockery? Well, he he stepped up all of his all of his efforts. You know, he he, he wore it proudly. Um, Comstock, despite all of his other problems, was uh, radically consistent, I would argue, you know, and when he was called, when this became a noun, he said, you know, I'll wear that proudly. Uh, You know, Shaw is right. Um, What I'm trying to do is purge obscene material. And of course, that meant almost anything regarding sex. This has become extremely, extremely topical because, you know, a lot of his... uh, uh, a lot of his early efforts were devoted to trying to suppress information about birth control. So we're, we are we've had censorship of books, art, and films, and classics like D. H. Lawrence's *Lady Chatterley's Lover* were banned. Also, books by William Faulkner, Ernest Hemingway, and others, and films by Ingmar Bergman and John Waters. Even Allen Ginsberg's poem *Howl*. Um, is that all? Are we past all of that now? Oh, hardly. I mean, I mean, obviously, in the past couple uh, in the past couple months, right? We've seen school school boards and school libraries get rid of Mouse, get rid of different books by Toni Morrison, um, uh, get rid of lots of LGBT themed young adult novels, and um, and books about critical race theory. Uh, well, that too, and again, you know, that's uh, something that it, it is often in the eye of the beholder. And obviously, there are some censors who have interpreted almost anything about race as some sort of awful offshoot of critical race theory. Um, so believe it or not, in one school district in the United States, a children's book about Ruby Bridges, who, of course, was one of the, the, the black girl who desegregated New Orleans schools in 1960, was deemed to uh, be some sort of product of critical race theory and was removed from some school or less. So, yes, it's, it's all around us. And let's remember, also, all of those measures, all of them have been sponsored by the Grand Old Party. And if you go onto Fox News, which is their TV station, you'll see them go on about the evils of cancel culture. I just don't get it. Um, I don't get how you can, can complain about cancel culture and then sponsor all these measures. But that's what they're doing. Now, one concern of people who are opposed to easy access to pornography is that children will be able to view it. Isn't that a reasonable concern? It absolutely is. You know, and again, back to my earlier point, no speech is limitless, right? And we do have regulations still 
of obscenity. And I think most reasonable people think that that's okay. So, you know, you can't uh, show um, uh, uh, children uh, in pornographic situations. And I think I think most reasonable people think that that's all right. Um, uh, now, of course, stands and all this evolve. And there was a time not so long ago that, you know, Lady Chatterley's Lady Lover, which you mentioned earlier, yeah. was put into the same frame as that. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, you think about the censorship of photographs by Robert, Ma- by Robert Maplethorpe. Um, uh, uh, all these standards are always evolving. Um, there is always a line, an obscenity line, beyond which we can't or shouldn't go. I think reasonable people will disagree about where that line is. Yet at the same time, I think it's also fair to say that obscenity has been trotted out to censor anything that you don't like. Indeed, some of these Toni Morrison books that came under the gun in places like Loudoun County, Virginia, interestingly, they were censored on the grounds of being obscene, um, uh, not because of their racial content. Now, we uh, try to come up with an appropriate bit of music for each show. And when, when I look up some topics, it turns out that uh, many songs are unusable because they contain uh, some obscenity. Uh, some recordings actually come with warning labels these days. But you don't write about this uh, still uh, WBAI was involved in a major case of censorship. The Supreme Court ruled against Pacifica because of uh, a broadcast on WBAI and the case involving George Carlin's Seven Dirty Words that, yeah. th- that, the, that the Supreme Court decided you can't say on radio or TV. So we have to do our show on a seven-second delay so we can delete it in case someone uses one of those words. Yes, and yet one of the strange things uh, about the way the law has evolved is that the cable networks don't have to abide by that. Yes. Um, this is sort of a Because you're paying thing. separately. One is over the air, anybody can listen, and the other one, you're paying for that service. Precisely. And the FCC only governs the ones that are free. Over the air. Uh, like, like you, right? Yes. I mean, presumably we are, we, are, we are over the air. Right. Right. And no one's paying. Obviously, you have donors whom I applaud and I've been a donor myself, but you don't actually charge anybody just to get the service. No, and, not like right. the BBC, where everybody right. in England has to pay a license fee, whether they listen to the BBC or not. Right. Right. Now um, we- look, you know, again, I, I think that there's a reasonable discussion to be had about the kind of things that uh, that, that can or should be. Uh, said on public service television and radio, Um, you know, uh, I think all of us can imagine some things that we wouldn't want to be on TV, like when a latchkey kid comes home at 3 p.m., like, would we want her or him to encounter hardcore pornography on network television? I don't think we would. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So I think, again, you know, uh, um, I'm not an absolutist on this subject. Um, uh, I do think that if we want to restrict any kind of speech, the burden should be on us as a civic community to explain why that should be so. And the example that I just gave, I think I could do that quite well. 
Um, saying the S word or the F word, I think it gets a little bit more complicated. I would argue it might depend on the time of day or even the type of show that you're talking about. Um, but I think these are the discussions that we need to have. My guests on today's Leonard Lopate at Large are Jonathan Zimmerman and Signe Wilkinson. We're talking about a new book from City of Light Publishing called Free Speech and Why We Should Give a Damn. Uh, now, uh, <laughs> what about the speech as violence line of argument? Is that something we should be concerned about? What are you What are you talking about? I mean, what are well? What when is speech considered violent, about? rather than just simply, uh, you know, me Obscene. expressing my opinion? Uh, is it when I actually call upon somebody to hurt somebody else? Uh, we've been seeing a fair amount of, th- of that discussed recently because of the January sixth insurrection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think there are two issues here, one of which we've talked about already and one of which we haven't. The first one has to do with this idea of incitement. And, and again, um, uh, the courts have declared, and I think they're right, that if we want to restrict somebody on the grounds of incitement, um, we have to be able to show that what they said had an immediate and particular and specific relationship to what occurred. Because if we don't do that, again, we'll get into the same situation as the Black Lives Matter protester, where, you know, he said something highly negative about the police, something violent, to use your term, happened Mm -hmm. to a police officer. Therefore, what he said was incitement. There's no therefore there, and there shouldn't be. But, Leonard, there's something else going on with this language here. What what, what, What we see, especially in college campuses, is a lot of people, mostly on the left, by the way, framing speech itself, hate speech, as a kind of violence. This is a different argument, right? It's not an argument about the speech inciting dangerous actions. It's an argument about the speech itself being violent. That is, its phraseology, its language, its content. But in in a number of cases uh, where uh, on on right-wing radio, uh, where... Uh, the, the 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 host of the show has has a, uh, has claimed something that isn't true. It has led to the lives of uh, innocent people being threatened. Sure, Alex I mean, Jones. Uh, it, many people uh, in responding to Alex Jones have threatened the lives of the parents of the children who died in a school shooting because he claimed it, it the the shooting didn't happen. Right. Right. And, and, you know, uh, now that, you know, a, a, a legal case came out of that. Right. Mm-hmm. And there are uh, um, uh, efforts on the part of those those families to sue Alex Jones for the lies that he told on the radio. Um, look, uh, we haven't talked about libel yet, mm-hmm. but um, we do have libel laws. And here, too, the differences are, are very stark from Europe. Um, uh, you can sue somebody for libel in Europe simply by showing most parts of Europe that what they said about you was false. The United States has a different standard. You have to show not just that what they said was false, but that they knew it was false and they were saying it anyway out of malice. In other words, that they wanted to harm you with it. They were aware of its falsity and they were trying specifically to use it to harm you. That's a higher standard. 
Well, how does, um, how does that apply to something like when uh, Donald Trump, when he was president, said the press is truly the enemy of the people? Yeah, I mean, uh, a terrifying comment, by the way. I'm a member of the press and I was appalled by that. Um, I, as appalling as I find that, um, uh, I think Trump had every right to say it. Um, uh, I think the right response and the response that we saw on the part of the press and others is raise your voice against it. Mm-hmm. That, too, is a form of free speech. Criticizing hateful, racist and false speech is a form of free speech. And I would argue possibly the most important form. Sigmund, you wanted to add to that? Well, and ridiculing it. I'm, I mean, ridicule brings, shrinks people. You can do it visually. You can do it through comedy on, um, you know, in talk shows or, or comedy routines. Late night shows did it really brilliantly. Um, we have a lot of people who know how to do it. And I think that that really helps um uh, counter it, and and it's it, you're not reacting out of fear, but you're reacting out of uh, using humor to um, uh, puncture uh, some pompous and and sometimes dangerous uh, speech. Have we seen uh, some dangerous speech uh, as a result of the, this COVID pandemic? Oh. And how? I mean, look, I come by this honestly because my wife is an infectious disease doctor. And she has to tangle with some of these clowns, and I use the term advisedly almost every day. Um, uh, um, Vaccines are real, and vaccine denial is real. It's real in the sense that it's a part of our body politic. And, to use your phrase, an extremely dangerous part. And yet at the same time, I don't want to see our government agencies or anybody else with the power of the gun preventing people from saying that stuff um, as reprehensible and as dangerous as I find it. Um, uh, And here's why. Um, The reason is, is that once we start restricting people and what they say, it doesn't end. And let me give you a very, very uh, tangible example of that, um, which is very close to the subject at hand, i.e. vaccines. Most people today don't know this, but Tony Fauci, who's lionized on the left in this country, was actually, um, uh, 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 he was denigrated and despised by many members of the left during the AIDS crisis, especially uh, by ACT UP. Why? Because, you know, Fauci thought that for a drug to be approved, it had to be both safe and effective. And we were at a time in the AIDS epidemic and at the time in the science where we had found that certain drugs were safe. And by drugs, now I'm talking about, you know, these protease inhibitors that would fend off some of the worst uh, um, symptoms of the disease. But they hadn't yet been shown to be effective. So we already knew that they were safe, but they weren't effective. And Fauci's position was, well, then we can't have them on the market. And, you know, ACT UP burned him in effigy. Hmm. ACT UP called him a murderer. You know what? Fauci gave an interview to The New Yorker last year where he said it's good they did that because they ended up changing Tony Fauci's mind. And a lot of people survived the epidemic because of that. This isn't because of Fauci, right? This is because of citizens 
alas, using their free speech rights. Alas, we have run out of time. Uh, I will end by saying I'm assuming that free speech will continue to be under attack into the, the far future. <laughs> my great thanks to my two guests, Jonathan Zimmerman, the Judy and Howard Berkowitz Professor in Education University of Pennsylvania, and, Sil- and Signe Wilkinson, who is uh, now at the uh, political cartoonist at the Philadelphia Inquirer. It's been a great pleasure having you on our show today, talking about your book, Free Speech and Why We Should Give a Damn, which is published by New Idea Press uh, uh, in its City of Light publishing imprint. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Leonard. It was fun. I'm retired from the Inquirer, but otherwise... Everything you said was correct. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much. And that, bring, that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WPAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcast. And you might also want to check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is lendedlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Free speech radio costs money, and we uh, don't take money from other sources. We rely 100% on our listeners. So please make a contribution, whatever level you're comfortable with, by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2 WBAI. BAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you the, this unique, in-depth content. And um, as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopate Lodge right now can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Free Speech and Why We Should Give a Damn. You might also... Consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and we'll say thanks for that with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We are truly free speech, the only 100% listener-sponsored station on the New York radio dial. Please help us survive and remain alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support, 212-209-2950, or give to WBAI.org. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Thursday when my guest, Taylor Brorby, will discuss his new book, Boys and Oil. We'll see you then.